You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, like Jared said, my name's Adam, and uh, it is it is so good to be here. It is just good to be home. I had uh, battens for breakfast yesterday, so it's good to be home. Uh, it's really good to be home. And uh, my wife Carrie and I are, you know, like Jared said, are from here, born and raised in the city. Uh, graduated from Green County Tech. Go Eagles! Okay. I love all things Paragold, so I love the Rams or Bulldogs or whatever you are. I love you too. Uh, when you make up your mind on what to call yourselves, let me know. And uh, but I love you either way. Um, no, man, it's good to be here. I grew up. Uh, I grew up just off 412 in the Center Valley. I don't even know what direction I'm pointing, but wherever 412 is, the Center Valley neighborhood. Carrie grew up out in the sticks, uh, out in the Finch area, off 358, and we're just glad to be home. We love. This city, we've never stopped loving Paragould. Uh, we love the fact that our families are here. We love the fact that you're here. We love the food. Uh, love battens. Uh, we, I mean, we we love we love the city, and we love this church. Um, so we've been watching from a distance for the last four years and praying for this church and watching and have been blown away by what God is doing here. And the fact that we are here now, like actually here, that we live here, that we get to be part of this family and we get to experience firsthand God's grace, which is obviously at work in and through this body and throughout this city, that's utterly mind-blowing to us. Um, I feel a little bit like uh, the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with his story, not because I'm anywhere nearly as cool as him, but... uh, he was kind of a rough dude before he met Jesus, and then uh, he's still a rough dude after he met Jesus, like all of us, but the difference is he had Jesus, and Jesus was changing his heart. And there's a scene in Acts chapter 9 where Paul is, uh, after Jesus has called him to himself and then called him to gospel ministry, Paul's out preaching the gospel and doing ministry and pastoring people, and these people see him, and they say, wait a second, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Um, and so I would venture to guess that for some of you, the moment that you heard that I was coming back to do ministry in this town, your response was, do we have it? Is not this the man who made havoc in Paragould? And uh, <laughs> did somebody yell for that and cheer for that? <laughs> Woo! If that's your response, I would understand. Uh, unfortunately, the answer to that question is yes. I am the man who made havoc in Paragould. And um, the, the difference between that Adam and this Adam is only Jesus. And um, so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to tell you a little bit more about that as I share my story with you as we look at Jonah's story and as we consider your own story and how Jonah's story relates to yours. Um, So what I want to do, grab your Bibles, if you have them, open up to Jonah chapter 3. We've been walking through Jonah for a few weeks now, and we're in chapter 3. And uh, you can also follow along with me on the screen. I think there's something powerful about opening up the Word. So if you want to open up your Bible, it's on page 775 in my Bible, if that helps you at all. Um, but Jonah chapter 3, and what I want to do is I just want to read this passage. I want to pray, and then we'll get after it, okay? So this is the, uh, this is the Word of the Lord for us this morning, and I believe it's going to pop up on the screen. If not, you can follow along uh, in, your, in your Word there. Um, here's the Word of God. Then the, the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I love that phrase. All of them. The word reached even the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, which is a sign of repentance, and ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. They even called the animals to fast. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone... Turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, when he saw their repentance, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you again and just ask for um, your grace to fall heavily on us this morning. I'm mindful that I'm not the only one in the room who comes here this morning with baggage, with brokenness, with wounds, with scars, with sin, with secrets. And we bring all these things into this place, anticipating to engage with your presence. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that because of Jesus... Your presence is loving and gracious and merciful and faithful toward us. So I pray that you'd meet us where we are and leave none of us unchanged. Draw um, out of our hearts true repentance and put into our hearts the joy of being loved, known and loved by Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Okay, this, this is uh, going to be a little bit of, of an extended introduction, but I think it's, it's necessary. I think it's going to help us get at the heart of what God wants us to hear in this text in uh, Jonah chapter 3. So to help us get there, I just want to start with a question, and uh, it's, 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 it's rhetorical. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't want you to answer out loud. I just want you to ponder this question in your own heart. Um, have you ever found yourself in a spot in life where you had really blown it? Uh, big time, uh, really, really messed up big time, uh, royally, a spot in your life where you realize like, man, I've, maybe it was a series of bad decisions. Maybe it was one utterly devastating bad decision that destroyed your life. It destroyed a relationship in your life. It robbed you of an opportunity. It tarnished your reputation. You ever been in that spot? Broken. Where, where you realize that the situation is broken, your life is broken, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to fix it. Because there's nothing you can do to deal with what caused the problem, which is your own mistake, your own failures. Let's call it your own sin. You ever been in that spot? Utterly broken, utterly helpless. Um, maybe associated with that reality... Um, how many of you have experienced, along with that kind of brokenness, feelings of exaggerated shame, 
exaggerated guilt. I'm not sure if you believe there is a God. I wouldn't assume everybody in the room uh, is a worshiper of Jesus. I would assume some of you in the room are seeking to understand. Maybe you're pursuing God. You want to know if there is a God. But how many of you have ever been in that kind of broken spot and you've had the thought of, if there is a God, I'm too broken, I'm too bad, I'm too damaged, I'm too dirty, I've gone too far, I've messed up too royally for God to ever love me, for God to ever know me and love me, and certainly for God to ever use me in his kingdom. Um, I would assume that most, if not all of you in the room have experienced that, and I would assume that some of you find yourself in that spot right now. You actually brought that into this room with you, and if so, welcome, because I brought all of that into the room with me too. Um, I brought all that baggage into the room with me, in fact. So that feeling of brokenness and helplessness, and I've really screwed up this time, and the shame and the guilt that's associated with that, that's what I felt back in October when my lifelong friend Jared Pickney called me and he said, do you want to move home? All of that was reawakened in me. Because Paragold, for me, was a place that I tried to run away from 10 years ago to run away from my past, to, to run away from my mistakes. Let's call it to run away from my sin and my brokenness in order to maybe start fresh and maybe even get a chance to redeem myself. Um, share a little bit about my story with you. Like I said, it's going to be an extended introduction. I think it's going to help us get at the heart of the text. Um, this is a place where I essentially tried to wreck my life. Um, I, uh, I had a reputation back in the day, for those of you who, who don't know, of uh, wreaking havoc in the city of Paragould. I, um, I had lunch with an old friend this week and he's from high school, and he said to me, um, he said, I would have invited you to lunch at Wendy's, but then I remembered that you were banned from, for life uh, from Wendy's. And uh, it's true. I, uh, I don't think the current staff knows that because I got a Baconator from there recently, but um, <laughs> it is true. I, I sat with my guys and my MC uh, this, this Friday night at Buffalo Wild Wings and listened to Jared tell story after story about all the places I've been kicked out of in Perigold and Jonesboro, and uh, it's not things I'm proud of, uh, but it, are th- it, is, it is things that happen. So <clears throat> my reputation. Um, yeah, man, I, I kind of terrorized this place growing up. I, uh, I pulled uh, really awful pranks on teachers, on local businesses. Um, I, uh, I did all kinds of stuff. And what I did was I really built my whole identity on being the class clown, which is the reason why I was voted class clown every year. Um, and Brittany Costner can tell you that. Um, back in the back. Every year. Um, I, 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 I was searching for something, Right? Like all of us, I was, looking for, um, I was looking for acceptance, I was looking for love, I was looking for approval, I was looking for the chance at being validated and affirmed, and so what I did was I built this whole image as the class clown. I learned kind of at an early age that I could make friends that way, I could draw people, I could entertain people, and so I pursued that, I ran after that, and uh, it almost destroyed my life. Um, it, it definitely hurt my reputation. I remember... Uh, my, uh, when my wife started dating me when, when, in high school, she had teachers pull her aside and say, please do not date Adam Breckenridge. You, you must aim higher in life than that. Like, you cannot do this. Uh, I, I don't blame them, and I was, I, was, I was a fool. I even, like, it's crazy for me to ponder the stuff that we used to do because I even was willing to risk my life to get attention and to get the sense of wholeness and redemption that... 
I was searching for. So I would do stupid things like surf on top of cars going 65 miles an hour down Highway 412 or Highway 358 uh, and climb up on top of buildings and jump off. And my wife has said to me multiple times over the last 10 years, reflecting on my stories, it is a miracle of God's grace that you are alive. And um, she's right. Um, Now, something happened. Let me speed up the story a little bit because I want to get to Jonah. Something happened in my life when I was 18 years old that, that changed everything. Um, at that time, I was also putting my hope in this girl, and then that relationship ended out of nowhere. And when it did, the whole house of cards for me, everything that I had built my identity and my life on came crashing down on me. And for the first time in my conscious memory, I felt broken. I was broken. I felt alone. I felt like I had messed up too much for anyone to know me and truly love me. And the next thing that happened in that moment, the the only way I know how to explain it is in that moment, Jesus broke into my bedroom right over at 206 Center Valley Drive. I'm sitting in my bedroom weeping, not knowing what's going on. Jesus, the presence of Jesus breaks into my bedroom and I hear the voice of Jesus say to me, stop running. You, You don't have to run to this image. You don't have to run to these things to give you what only I can give you. You weren't created for that. You were created for me. Stop running freaked me out okay so the first thing i did was i didn't know what to do so i opened up a bible i grabbed my bible opened it up to the first book uh, that i turned to in the new testament the gospel of matthew and i got to chapter 11 of matthew and i heard the voice of jesus call out to me a second time with even greater clarity this uh, matthew chapter 11 verse 28 come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's find your identity in me. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, Adam. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So I felt Jesus say, hey, I'm here, I'm real, I'm risen. I actually love you, I actually created you. I want you to know me, I want to know you, I want to love you, I want to give you grace, run to me. And I felt this call to Jesus, and I felt this call from Jesus. From that moment, I knew I was going to give the rest of my life to preaching the gospel, making disciples, and serving for the sake of his church. I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. How do you turn a total clown into a pastor? I'm literally asking because I'm still trying to figure that out. How do you turn a total clown into a pastor? Like, the only thing I need to do is enroll at Bible school. So I went to Williams Baptist College. And I wish I could tell you that from that point on, my story was happily ever after. Like Adam goes to school, and Adam becomes a pastor, and Adam starts a family, and the rest is great. But like once I got to Williams, the only problem was I started, again, running to the jester and the joker and the prankster, Adam, instead of running to Jesus for my identity. So I went back to the same patterns of sin. Ever been there? Same patterns of brokenness. And uh, eventually got myself kicked out of Bible college. Twice. Uh, so the first time uh, I was a freshman, uh, the second time I was a sophomore, and the second time, like, I'd really blown it. Escorted off the campus by the police. I was told that if I ever come back, I'll be arrested. And um, I knew that no church in this city would hire me. I wouldn't have a chance of pastoring here ever again. It was done. And I found myself in the same bedroom at 206 Center Valley Drive, Two years after Jesus broke into my life and saved me and changed me and called me. And once again, I was broken. Um, 
I felt like I've messed up royally. I've gone too far. I've screwed up my life. I've squandered this call to ministry. What am I going to do with my life? Jesus put this call in my life. What am I going to do? I've squandered this opportunity. I've blown it all, and there's no way he can ever use me again. And uh, during that season, I got a phone call from one of my professors at Williams, and he said, uh, I'm, A, I'm really angry with you for being an idiot. B, I love you. And I want to give you a second, second chance. So um, I'm going to write a letter of appeal to the board, and I'm going to see if they'll let you back. They said they would never let me back. They did let me back. And for the next two years of school, I carried a 4.0 grade point average, and then I got married, and then I moved to Kansas City to pursue graduate studies in biblical and theological studies. Now, I wish, again, I could tell you that from that point, it was happily ever after for Adam. Uh, But the truth is, once I got to Kansas City, I continued to run from Jesus and his call in my life. Here's what's crazy about the human heart. I was using good things like pastoral ministry and the Bible and theology to now run from Jesus. So I used seminary to run from Jesus and his call on my life. I, I essentially went from the, jo- the jester, the joker, to the scholar. And now I built my identity on having biblical knowledge and knowing theology and trying to be the smartest guy in the room. And so, God, man, over the last 10 years, Jesus has just continued to break into my life and say, you don't get it, man. You don't get it. Like, come, run to me and I'll give you rest. Find your identity in me, and I'll give you the rest and the wholeness that your soul longs for. And so he's continued to break me down and shape me and show me that he's my only hope. And now, a decade later, I'm back where my story started. And here's the thing um, that continues to blow me away as I assess my own personal narrative. Um, It's not that I'm coming home now a fixed man, because that would make me the hero of my story. So... The, the truth is I'm not coming home a fixed man. I'm coming home very much still a failure and very much still a broken person and very much still carrying wounds and baggage and present sin. And the temptation of my flesh is very much still to drift from Jesus and run to Jesus to other things. So I'm coming back still a broken person. The thing about my story that absolutely blows me away, the thing God has shown me over and over again in my story, the thing that we see in Jonah's story, the thing that God wants you to see in your story is this. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter how far you run. You cannot outrun the grace that God desires and delights to show you in Jesus. You cannot outrun it. You can reject it, but you cannot outrun the grace that God wants to show you right now. Whatever baggage you brought into the room with you, you don't have to hide that from Jesus. You don't have to pretend and posture with that with Jesus. You bring that to him, and he desires to show you nothing but grace and mercy. Nobody in this room, especially if if I'm in this room, nobody in this room is beyond the laser focus of his grace. Nobody's beyond the bounds and the utterly limitless limitations of his grace. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want you to assess your own story as we look at Jonah's story. And I want to focus on, with the rest of our time, I'm going to try to move quickly, Um, Jonah chapter 3, and I just want to talk about this relentless, ever-pursuing, boundless, generous, limitless grace of God that insists on pursuing you and healing you and redefining you and restoring you. I want to talk about that and the implications of that for your life, and I want you to consider what that means for your story, all right, as we look at Jonah's story. So let's do it, man. Let's turn to the text. Look with me at Jonah chapter 3. If you close your Bible, you can open it, or perhaps it's going to appear on the screen. You can follow along with me there. Go to Jonah chapter 3. 
verse 1, and we're going to camp out here for a little while. I think this is the, one of the most important verses in the, whole ta- in, the, in, the, in the whole book. So chapter 3, verse 1, the author says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? Let's say it again together. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, second time, right? The second time. Okay, just put your eyes on that phrase, and let's focus on that phrase for just a second. I want to talk about this. God gives Jonah a second chance, right? God comes to Jonah, and he calls Jonah a second time. That means there was a first time. What happened the first time God calls Jonah? Let's do a little review. He runs, right? He runs. God comes to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. If you look at the text, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, speaks to Jonah, and says, get up and go to Nineveh. Tell those people that I'm real. Tell them not to play around with me. Tell them that I created them. Tell them that I care about justice. Tell them that I care about every fiber of their being, and I care about the way they live their lives. I care about what's going on in their hearts. Tell them if they don't stop running from me and running to idols they've created in their own image, I'm going to destroy them because I'm a just and holy God. Okay, Jonah, you got that, Jonah. Get up. Go tell them that. What does Jonah do? Jonah bails. He skates. He turns and he runs literally thousands of miles in the opposite direction. Why does Jonah run? We see in chapter 4 that Jonah runs because Jonah, just like you and me, has a lot of junk in his heart. Um, Jonah, chapter 4, we're going to talk about this next week. Jonah doesn't share the heart of God. Jonah is a racist. Jonah um, is self-righteous. Jonah does not care about the Ninevites. He thinks he's better than the Ninevites. He would rather God nuke the Ninevites then pursue them and show them grace. So Jonah turns and Jonah runs. What does God do in that moment? I think it's really helpful for you to interpret your own story to see what God does in Jonah's story in that moment. God turns and runs after Jonah. We see not only his pursuit of the Ninevites, but his pursuit of Jonah himself. God turns, God goes, and God runs after Jonah. And we see in chapter 1, he hurls this great storm at Jonah, and now Jonah finds himself literally drowning in a sea of his own bad decisions. Ever been there? I've been there. He's, he's drowning in an ocean of his sin and his rebellion. And so then a miracle happens. In a very bizarre display of God's grace, God sends this great fish, right? We usually think of it as a whale. God sends this massive fish that swallows up Jonah. Uh, Jonah stays alive in the belly of this nasty thing for three days and three nights. And God literally saves Jonah from his own sin and his own certain judgment and destruction. And God calls Jonah to himself a second time. Why does he do that? Look at, look, at, look at chapter 2, verse 19. After three days and three nights in the belly of this fish, the Lord spoke to the fish. It vomits Jonah out on dry land. That's amazing. That's kind of awesome. It vomits him out on, on dry land. And now you're Jonah sitting there trying to make sense of this. And before you know it, the word of the Lord comes to him and calls him a second time. God gives Jonah a second chance. Why does he do that? Why do he give me a bajillion second chances? Why is he giving you second chances right now? Like, by the way, if you're hearing the voice of the Lord calling to you now, he's giving you another chance to respond. Why is he doing that? Is it because, A, Jonah is amazing? Is it because Jonah is ready to redeem himself now? 
Is it because God needs Jonah or he needs Adam or he needs you or he needs fellowship to accomplish his grand redemptive purposes? No, man. Here's why God insists on pursuing after a racist, rebellious, renegade prophet. The reason God insists on pursuing Jonah is because God loves nothing more. It gets him out of bed in the morning if, if he were to sleep. He doesn't sleep. But it gets him out of bed in the morning. To, he loves to put his glory on display by showing grace to undeserving sinners. He just loves it, man. He's giddy about it. He loves it. Here, here's, here's the thing that, that, the, the thing that captures my heart is that why, why is that so hard for us to receive? Why is that so hard for me to believe that? That's a really important question, especially for the religious South. I think that uh, what would it take for us in the religious South to, to reject this erroneous idea that God somehow needs me to work for him or do stuff for him or um, have, a, have some kind of perfect moral record or at least try to balance the scales as best as I can in order to be accepted and approved of by him? You want to know what the grace of the gospel says to us? Dude, salvation belongs to the Lord, and salvation is by grace and grace alone. The only reason God pursues all the way to the cross, is where Jonah is ultimately pointing us, is because God desires to show grace to undeserving sinners. It's against the backdrop of our sin. It's what puts his glory on display forever. He loves it. And I would guess that there's some of you in this room who find yourself in that spot that we talked about a second ago. You find yourself saying, like, that sounds great, Adam. And I'm glad it worked out for you. But you don't know what I've done, and you don't know how far I've ran, and you don't know the things that I've thought and the things I've... You don't know what I've done. You're right, man. I don't. I don't have a clue what you've done. I know what Jesus has done. And I know that Jesus lived the life that you and I never could live and failed to live, and Jesus died the death that we deserve to die so that by trusting in his grace, we can be made whole and we can be forgiven and we can have the scars and the wounds that we carry um, healed. It's the invitation of the gospel of Jesus to all of us in this room. What we see in the book of Jonah is that God is a God of grace. And God is a God of infinite second chances. Now, here, let me get inside your head for a second because here's where you're tempted to take this if you're anything like me. You're tempted to take this as, okay, so God saves and gives me a, check in, a, a, a second chance to redeem myself, Right? God's going to give me a second chance to actually do better, try harder, and make it right this time and, and atone for my mistakes. I mean, that's, we've missed the whole point if that's where we go with this. God doesn't give Jonah a second chance so that he can have a shot at redemption. God gives Jonah a second chance to show Jonah redemption. And God gives you a second chance, multiple, infinite second chances in Jesus to show you over and over the redeeming power of his grace. It's not a shot at redemption. Like, you know, what, what are the practical implications of that? What does that mean for us? It means that we, we, we don't have to perform for his approval. It means that you can't work for his grace, and the good news is you don't have to. Some of you in this room, if you're anything like me, are literally exhausted because you've put yourself on a treadmill of self-righteousness and trying to earn the Father's approval. And instead of running to Jesus, you run to religion to make yourself feel whole and to make yourself feel like you have a sense of personal credibility. So you run to your resume of church attendance or the fact that you used to teach Sunday school or the fact that you have Bible degrees 
or the fact that, you know, you're perceived a certain way or you go to church or whatever. And it's, it's exhausting. And it actually only stirs up guilt and shame in your life. You know, what the, you know what it means that God comes to Jonah a second time, that he insists on coming to you time and time again to show grace? It means you don't have to work for him. It means you don't have to perform. It means you don't have to pretend that you're better than you are. I know what it's like to, ha- to create an image and have to try to upkeep it and maintain it. Um, so for much of my life, once I kind of left, I ran from my past. I left Paragold, and once I got to Kansas City, I learned how to comb my hair. Uh, I bought a leather bag. Um, I, I started dressing like a big boy, and now I tried to maintain this image of I'm, I'm perfect Adam now. I'm no longer that fool. I'm actually like I've got my ducks in a row. And I wanted to look like I was like this smooth duck, you know, gliding across the surface of the water. And meanwhile, what nobody saw, it's a great image, right? Just think about that for a second. Um, What nobody saw was like actually I was paddling frantically beneath the surface to like stay afloat. And I was about to drown in a sea of my own self-righteousness. You know, dude, the fact that God is a God of infinite second chances in Jesus means that you don't have to perform, you don't have to pretend to be better, better than you are. Just come as you are and receive his grace and mercy. Stop running from it. Run to him and find rest. It means you, don't have, to, you have nothing to prove, you have nothing to self-protect. It means also that you can stop punishing yourself. You don't have to perform. You don't have to uh, pretend. You don't have to punish yourself. Um, I spent a lot of years beating myself up for my mistakes. And when Jared called me in October and he said, you want to come home, I thought, man, like, there's no way I could come back and pastor in that place. And I felt wallowing in my guilt and shame and beating myself up for the opportunities that I squandered here. Um, and I felt God come to me a second time, a second, 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 second time, and say to me, like, dude, you, don't, you still don't get it, man. You don't have to punish yourself. Jesus was punished for you. What would it take for us to actually believe that God is a God of infinite second chances and a God of infinite, relentless grace in Jesus. It'll change your life. And it'll redefine your life. And it'll restore your life. Because here's what we see as you keep moving in this text. When you, when you come to Jesus and you respond to his call to stop running, and you run to him, not only does the grace of God redeem you, it also restores you. And it redefines you. Because what we see with Jonah is, it, re- it restores him as God's prophet, it restores his identity and it restores his mission. So when you come to Jesus, Jesus gives you a new identity and he gives you a new mission. And he calls you, broken people, to go out and be a part of his redemptive plan. It's good news for a broken person like me. Look at, what, look, look at the text and uh, look at chapter 3. Let's actually just start back at verse 1 again. Jonah chapter 3. The author says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, verse 2, Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. The text indicates that he got up immediately. He didn't take a shower. He didn't comb his hair. He didn't try to make himself look presentable. Three days in the belly of a fish, lots of fish guts on him, seaweed wrapped around his head, wearing all of the scars, emotional scars, the wounds of his bad decisions. He gets up immediately with breath in his lungs, and he goes to Nineveh. And watch what happens. 
Jonah goes to Nineveh. He gets one day's journey into the city and he starts preaching. Yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Verse 5 blows me away. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed him. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth and ashes from the greatest of the least. It means every single person in the city. We see in chapter 6, even the king himself. Every person from the greatest to the least. Every man, woman, and child in that city believes God and is redeemed and transformed through a lackluster, renegade, smelly, stinky, half-hearted, half-obedient prophet named Jonah. Listen, man, you, you hear, this is what's amazing. We, we, if you're anything like me, you grew up thinking that this is a story about a great fish, right? Uh, chapter 1, verse 17, God sends a great fish to rescue Jonah. And we think that's the miracle of the story. Jonah survives for three days in the belly of a fish. Let me tell you a far greater miracle. This is, Jonah's not a story about a great fish. Jonah is a story about a great God who relentlessly pursues and desires to show great mercy to great sinners just like you and me. And the greatest miracle in human history that you'll ever see is God transforming the human heart. Because only God can do that. And coupled with that miracle is this miracle of his mercy, the fact that God uses broken, sinful people like you and me to change human hearts. Dude, if that doesn't blow you away, nothing will. God uses broken, sinful people. Some of you in this room think like, man, again, you don't know my story. Um, I've messed up to the point that there's no way that God could ever use me. I'm standing here. Not as a broken, not as a, I am a, not, I am a broken person, not as a fixed person. I'm standing here as a living, breathing, walking illustration of God's mercy. Because I'm the same fool that I was then, except now Jesus is, has his teeth sunk into my heart. And he's slowly but surely changing me into his image. It's the same thing he's doing in your life, or wants to do in your life. God's grace pursues you to save you. And then to send you back out into people's lives as a walking, living, breathing illustration of what only God can do. And that's change the human heart. That's what God wants to do through this church, throughout this city. What we are at Fellowship, if, you're, if you are a guest and you're trying to figure out what we're all about, let me tell you what we're all about. We're all about Jesus. And we're all about what only he can do through the power of his grace. And what Jesus is doing in and through this body is he's creating one massive billboard. I don't know where you want to put it. You can't just, the beautiful thing is this is not church. We are the church. And so when we scatter, this billboard goes everywhere. You put, put it all over the place. It sits next to people in cubicles. It wakes up next to unbelievers. It, uh, it, dude, it goes everywhere. What we are at Fellowship is a walking, breathing example and billboard of God's relentless grace and mercy. I don't, I don't know what you've done, but I know what I've done, and I know what Jesus has done. And I know that what God wants to do is save you and then give you a story all about how Jesus is the hero. And he's calling you to tell that story with other people. Um, everybody God ever used in the scriptures was a total screw-up. I mean, it was baffling to me to go back and, and look at that this week. Abraham was a liar and a pimp, basically. He sold his wife to the Egyptian king. Uh, Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Paul was a murderer. A lot of murderers God used. I could be a murderer. Um, uh, that was supposed to be a joke, but... Um, 
I mean, I guess I could be if the doctrine of total depravity is true, and it is. Um, I did, thankfully did not kill anyone while I was here. I almost got killed a few times. but The people God uses just to showcase how amazing his grace is are broken, sinful people. What would it look like if we as a church actually believed that? And we actually uh, shared our story with other people. Um, not about how we're the hero, but about how Jesus is the hero. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking like, man, but what if I mess up the story? What if I get part of the gospel wrong? Dude, you know what's comforting to me as a preacher? Jonah preaches the worst sermon in the history of the world. And the whole city is transformed. Jonah, this racist, renegade prophet, walks in and says, God hates all you guys, and so do I, and he's going to kill you, and I hope he does. Peace, I'm out. He doesn't even tell them the good news. But they have to figure it out for themselves. You notice what the king says later on? The king goes, maybe if we repent, perhaps God will show mercy. Yeah, Jonah should have told you that. Jonah should have told you that if you turn away from your sin and you run to Jesus, God will show you infinite. You can't outrun his grace. You can't get, you can't get away from it. It will haunt you. It will haunt you. It's beautiful good news. Jonah preaches the worst sermon ever. And what does God do? God uses it to transform an entire city from the greatest to the least, from the kings to the peasants. That word least also means child. Every man, woman, and child. You want to know why we exist as a church? We exist in this city so that every man, woman, and child might have a daily encounter with the real risen Jesus. They may, that they might encounter and enjoy the presence and the life-transforming grace of the real risen Jesus. That's my prayer. That's why I moved home. That's the only reason I moved home. Ask my four-year-old. She'll tell you. It's the only reason we came home. We came home to be a part of that. So thanks for welcoming us back. And here's how I want to close. I said this at the beginning. It's impossible in Jesus. It's impossible to outrun the grace that God desires and delights to show you. It is possible to reject his grace. And so the invitation from Jesus is, come to me, run to me. Stop running and looking to things to be for you what only I can be for you, and run to me, and I'll give you the rest and the wholeness that your soul longs for. And what we see at, at the end of chapter 3 is if you repent and turn away from your sin and run to Jesus, God will relent, and he will show you limitless grace and mercy. Which leaves me with this question, how is God able to do that? How in the world is he able to do that if he's just and holy? I've asked that question a lot in my life because I've done a lot of bad stuff in my life. How is God able when Adam Breckenridge or when you turn and repent, how is God able to relent? The reason God is able to relent is because God sent us a true and better Jonah. And God refused to relent when his son Jesus cried out for mercy. God poured the full force of his wrath upon his son Jesus, so that by turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus, we might receive nothing but limitless, relentless grace and mercy. True and better Jonah, the only perfect human being in human history who ever got it right the first time. Jesus didn't need a second chance. Jesus lived the life we failed to live, and he died the death we deserve to die, so that we might be redeemed and restored.